Welcome to the podcast, the destination for insightful discussions and interviews on the appreciation, conservation, and husbandry of reptiles with a focus on turtles and tortoises. Now, let's join our team of turtle nerds. Woo! Welcome. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Uh, today, the pond, tomorrow, the world. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. Uh, tonight, we're very excited to have with us a very special guest who's been on the podcast. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ralph, but this is this is the third time, correct? Uh, yeah, third. Uh, one, two, three. Yeah, third time. Yes. Third time. It's it, We were due. We were due. And you're one of those special guests and special friends who... Uh, we keep bringing back for more like we used to do with Chris back in the day before he became like a co-host. But uh, we're, we're really excited to have you here. There's a lot of really important topics that we wanted to cover. So uh, this everyone is I already said his name, but this is Ralph Till, uh, esteemed, famed Egyptian tortoise guru, uh, spider tortoise breeder, pancake tortoise breeder. Uh, and formerly among other species and uh, also the um, president of what that's it's president right ralph of of the yeah. tampa turtle and tortoise society yeah uh so we're going to talk about a bunch of different stuff uh, matthew hills refers to you as the tortoise godfather so i hope that's okay <laughs> and you know just like the godfather in old school i have an oil painting of ralph's portrait that's tilted just to the side above my mantle and shannon it took shannon a little while to get used to it but we we like it so I hope you don't mind. Yeah, I'm sure she's just thrilled, right? Ralph didn't know that until just now. He just I figured just, that out yeah, right now. I'm not. I'm not really sure how to react to that one. Um, so if that was a test, <laughs> I don't know who to feel more sorry for, you or Shannon. I don't even know. I feel like I, I just want to. I want to talk about this third episode thing with you. The first time was 2017. I remember it fondly. It was March 2017 because I was in. Florida and I actually was with you at your place and we recorded that episode together from your tortoise room yep. and I remember I remember distinctly making you uncomfortable like that because I like to make you uncomfortable with with yeah. my jokes sometimes yeah and yeah, uh, and then yeah I do I do I get <laughs> a little too friendly I overstay my welcome quickly it happens a lot yeah, yeah. but uh you were also then on in 2019 and I remember that one distinctly because I was living in a hotel and I was actually sitting outside the hotel when we recorded that one live, and we had a, I had a little bit of technical difficulties. I think maybe you did too, Ralph. But we had some we had some video issues. Yeah, we did. What's going on? We did it happen sometimes, but uh, yeah. But uh, we're here now, and uh, with a new episode, and there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to talk about. So I I, I wanted to start off by just obviously stating the obvious: Hurricane Ian made its way through Florida now uh, six days ago. And yeah. uh, obviously that was something that, that hit close to home for you, you know, being in Tampa, the Tampa area, and um, obviously people people close to you and everything. And just want to say that, you know, our, our hearts go out to everyone there. And um, yeah, I, I just want to say, so, you know, sorry for your troubles to, and, and to everyone who's been involved. We... Um... We dodged a bullet here, uh, big time. It was we were we were in the sights, 
we were in the crosshairs. All the all the forecast predictions, all the maps, the uh, everything said it's coming here. So this whole area, uh, you know, was was locked down essentially, and uh, including ourselves. Um, fortunately for us, at the eleventh hour, it kind of made a, a an eastward move, and and obviously you've seen the the results where it went ashore in Fort Myers and all that area. And um, uh, the net result was that here it was a non-event. Uh, you know, we've had thunderstorms that were worse than this. It rained some and the wind blew and there's twigs and junk all over the place, but that was it. Yeah, nothing compared to what some other people have experienced. Unfortunately, you know, you've seen uh, the, the the videos on on the news. I'm sure that South Florida, especially the Sanibel Island, just got devastated. I mean, they just they're wiped out. And then it continued. It went across the state, all the way up and through Daytona. And and what's happening now? Because of all the rain, all the rivers are are overflowing. So all the water that was dumped in the Orlando area. Is coming downstream and flooding all the rivers. <laughs> so it's you think it's over, but it's not. So you got to feel bad for our friends down there. They some of them just have it bad, really, really bad. Yeah, for sure. I know. You know, I've heard some folks who've pretty much lost everything, and yeah. um, you know that that's heartbreaking. And you know, I. Some folks will be able to rebuild their, you know, some of their setups and stuff, you know, from our turtle friends. But like, when like everything's gone, it's it's it can be just heartbreaking. So, can't even imagine. Yeah, I I cannot imagine. Um, You know, you almost feel guilty because that right right straight for us. And and now I'm I'm lucky right here where my house is. We jokingly say we're in the hills of Florida. We're at like 50 feet <laughs> elevation. So we we wouldn't have had the storm surge, uh, but we, we you know we would have had the wind aspect of it. But we didn't get any of it. Knock on wood. It just it it missed us. It's so wild how it can just be like a crapshoot like that. You don't really know. And there's so many different projections that put things in different areas. So you're really just hoping yeah, and yeah. crossing your fingers and praying that that uh, it's not going to happen to you. But obviously, these are places that many of us have been and, and many of us love going to and, and, and some of us actually live in. And It's just luck or, or lack of luck of the draw. What, yeah. what, are the, what are people in Florida normally like when that happens? Like, are, are people usually, I'm going to stay put and kind of hunker down or do a lot of people evacuate or do they not just because they don't well, really know what's going to happen? What has happened in the last decade or so the they've upped the standards so much for construction you know all the homes now are built out of concrete block all construction has to have uh the hurricane proof windows um you know yeah, the, the the roofs are secured all the roof trusses are secured more so the homes themselves the newer homes are fairly well built and it gives you a little bit of a a sense of security i guess um, the places that really get ravaged, and it always happens, are mobile home parks. 
and and beachfront property. And beachfront property is obviously on the beach, and all the mobile home parks seem to be in a low-lying area that nobody else wants. And and they're the ones that get ravaged. They, you know, it, 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 even in a real bad thunderstorm, sometimes uh, they'll get shifted around. But people keep going back to them, so I, I don't. Yeah, it's really sad. It's really sad. I'm I'm sure sorry. Rebuild, down in South Florida, I'm sure they'll rebuild all that. Yeah. That Sanibel Island is prime real estate. Prime, right. prime. I mean, there are some big, big time homes out there. And so the people that can afford it, I presume, will probably just rebuild and say, oh, well. Right. Wow. That's, just, that's incredible. Yeah. I saw some video of Sanibel that's just heartbreaking. And yeah, I mean, I can remember story. being down there 50 years ago and there wasn't a house to be found on it, you know? Wow. It was just all empty land. And uh, and then they started to develop it and and uh, off it went. All that area, Fort Myers Beach, there was nothing there. Yeah, Florida definitely is a place that uh, people figured out that it was a nice place to to move to. Yeah, it is. You know, it's 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 nice. The weather's nice. You know, ironically, since the storm passed, the last three or four days have probably been the nicest weather you could ask for. I mean, it drops down into the 60s at night, maybe 81 or two or three during the day. Clear blue sky, low humidity for Florida. Yes. I mean, it's wow. it's spectacular. The weather is spectacular. And that's what, I guess that's what it had to do. I, yeah. I, storm pushed all that crap out. I don't know how that that stuff works. but uh. And uh, I, I've got a, a list of topics. It's easy when our guest is somebody who we know really, really well. So I've got a whole list of topics that I wanted to touch on. So I'm not going to say we'll go through them rapid fire, but I want to, I do want to keep it moving so that we can get, can touch on some uh, some fun topics. Obviously, sure. I mean there may be people out there who are wanting to to you know enjoy some time away from the reality of life, uh, and possibly including um, weather, so and other life related things. So so let's give them an opportunity to kind of step aside, step away from that, and really enjoy uh, some of the topics that that we enjoy talking about. So uh, first of all. Spider tortoises. I wanted to just bring this up as somebody who loves spider tortoises. Now, a few, some of the people tuning in may think that they're uh, just pretty rocks, but Ralph and I are a couple of spider tortoise enthusiasts, and we—that's probably the thing that you and I like geek out about the most when we're talking to each other. I think the phrase that you like to use in your text messages when something cool happens is like, "I'm about to wet myself." Uh, so we, which I just think is funny. It's like a Ralphism that just makes me laugh more than it should. But like, we, we really enjoy right. that species, right? But that's a species that has a reputation for being a pretty rock for being relatively un, uh, you know, for lacking the excitement that some other species do. They're not like diamondback terrapins that are swimming up against the, the glass, begging you for food yeah. or, you know, Indian star tortoises that, stomp around the enclosure a bunch. So so what is it about spider tortoises for you, Ralph, before we get into specifics and kind of geek out over the fact that we've started to finally have some success after more than a decade well, of trying? What's interesting is I believe the first contact that you and I ever had was in regards to spider tortoises ever. 
Makes sense. I didn't know Anthony Pierleoni from anybody except that you talked about spider tortoises. And and I was desperate to meet anybody that had <laughs> spider tortoises. So uh, yeah. little did I know, right? Right. And and they number one, it's it's the size. I like little tortoises. I'm I'm enamored by them. And and I like the challenge of trying to work with a species that's under duress. And Lord knows they are, you know, they, they, they're at the top of the list practically. Anything from Madagascar is, is, is on the verge of just being wiped out if it hasn't been. Um, that was the attraction to me, you know, that, that it was the challenge. And so uh, that's the direction I went. They stay small and they're, and they're finicky. Yeah, they are finicky. Tell tell me more about that. What does finicky mean? Well, in the beginning, the first the first ones I ever got, I, I bought three hatchlings off a guy, and and uh, I'm not going to mention any names, but uh, I bought these three hatchlings. Why three at one time? I really don't know, but I thought, why not? If I'm going to do it, I'm going to try and do it the right way. That's the only way I know how to do it. And, um, and I had them set up and, um, and I kept reading stuff. And every time I would read an article by somebody, I would change the setup because it was too wet, too dry, too cold, too hot, whatever. Um, and then, <laughs> you know, the first year I had them, they, they, they went underground and, and it's like, oh man, now what? And, and I would dig them up about every three days thinking that they're going to starve or dry up or, and, and I probably shouldn't have, but I did. And, you know, they survived the first year, thank God. And then they started to grow. And, and once I realized I could keep them alive, then it became a little easier for me anyhow. Yeah. What's the, what's the temperature that they get like like what are the coldest temperatures in the in the coldest time of the year like what's the daytime temp and the nighttime temp because i know you get a fluctuation in your in your room i would say the coldest they've ever seen is 60 Mm -hmm. and the hottest they've seen is well under a basking lamp you know could be 100 degrees under the basking lamp Sure, sure, but they're not sixty often, right? Would you say in the in, nah, the, in nah. the dry season? In the, in the winter time, in the winter time, I let the room go to ambient, okay. And unless we have a freeze, mm-hmm. which is rare, uh, but then I'll, I'll put a little space heater on the floor. But I don't run it maybe sixty-five degrees. So I would say the coldest it ever goes down to is sixty. And then mm-hmm. during the day, the room would warm up to this is in the wintertime because um, I'll turn off the lights on them. Uh, the room it go up to maybe 72 or three or four or something like that. During the right. So, so not really cold temperatures, but I know they can take cold temperatures. The, I can remember a care sheet that said that they can get down into the 40s, the, the care sheet that Zavikian uh, Zavikian wrote, and I think uh, if if my memory serves me right, uh, Ben let his get down into the 40s as well. Mine get cooler than yours do, where they're down into the 50s, but then they're not coming out and warming up 
and the, the heat of the day doesn't really warm them up much. So they're probably going like 55 to 60. So, but then the interesting piece of this is yours go down for how long? Oh gosh, <laughs> it, it varies. The, the Brykuwai, it seems like forever, maybe six months. Right. You so know? that's what I was going to say. Mine are six months too, but they have those different, we're uh, keeping them at different temperatures. It's like they know, and, and what's funny is you can spray them, but they'll still stay down. It's like they oh, know, yeah, yeah. yeah, and you can put, bump up the, the heat and yeah. they still go down. So, yeah. so it's really interesting how almost like they're tied into like the barometric pressure or something. Like they know it's, it's winter, it's the dry season. I'm going down for six months and I'm doing it whether I'm at Ben's house, Anthony's house. Or yeah. Ralph's house. That's initially, a really interesting piece. Like I said initially, I would, I would, uh, I would dig them up, you know, because I thought, oh God, you know, something's not right. And uh, and then I would, then I let it go for a month. I dig them up once a month, and and um, and I'd soak them and I put food in front of them, and they would look at the food, take a bite, and 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 then bury themselves for another month. I mean, they would eat a half of a piece of lettuce or a mushroom or something, and that's it. Not enough to sustain anything, you wouldn't think. But And then they would just go back down. Um, there's a stretch from about middle of December, I'll say maybe the first of the year through the first of probably April, a three-month stretch where all of them are down. Every single specimen is down. Yeah. But but some of the, the arachnoides will will start in, in um, uh, maybe not until the first of the year, whereas the Braguay maybe November. Um, and then some will come out in March, and others won't come out until June. The, the right. right I seem to stay down the longest. That's my observation here. And I don't do anything other than uh, as the ambient temperatures change here, I'll adjust it because the, of the, uh, the Egyptians. And I just, so for everyone who's paying attention, I just want to let you know, like, we're talking about spider tortoises and Ralph's talking about Brigui or Brigui. They're, they're a, a subspecies of spider tortoise, uh, Pyxis arachnoides brigui, brigui. Right. Um, so Ralph, unlike myself, because he's cooler than I am, keeps several different taxa within the Pix, Pixis genus, which is really cool. Uh, so I think what's interesting about this is, like, like I mentioned, that they're very they're a very odd species in that they kind of need to go down and. Number one, they're relatively they're relatively notable uh, inactivity level compared to some other species. I think turns some people off. But then also, when they go down for that slumber every year, it's it can be really nerve wracking for new keepers and something I struggled with a ton. Yeah. Are you still? And I know you said that you were waking yours up, and I still do. Do you still wake yours up during that time, or do you? The still only thing I did this year was um, I'm also fortunate enough to have some uh, planicotta 
and I had, I just had to, I had to dig them up. I had to. Yeah, and, I get and, it. Yeah, <laughs> just nerve wracking. I didn't need to, but I had to, you know. Uh, but now, like with the arachnoides, uh, I just leave them be. I let them do their own thing. If they go down, they're down. That's their business. If they want to come out, and it'll happen once in a while. It'll be in the middle of January, and you'll see two of them out walking around uh, just on their own. And then, you know, in a day or two later, they'll go they'll, they'll down, and that'll be it for another month. Right. I don't anymore now with the and this is years ago when I was so extra nervous about them with the arachnoides, 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 and arachnoides bright blue eye. I just let them do their own thing, and now I'm kind of conditioning myself to let the planicata do their own thing because that's what they do. Right. You know? Why right. mess with it? They, they yeah. Know what doing. They know what they're doing, right? And you're yeah. giving them everything they need, right? There's a water. I, I, give them, I give them what they they need, and I just let them do what they need to do with it, you know. So. And most species will go towards the heat lamp at this time, right? They want to warm up because it's cooler in the room. These there guys go the cool. opposite direction and go and hide in the cool yep. area because yeah. they know oh, it's time to sleep. I'm tired. Need my beauty rest, which is yep. kind of cool. It's just not what you're used to, and I think. When, when you can kind of ditch that status quo in your brain in terms of what you're looking for in an experience when you're working with a species like that, because this is obviously, like, I don't care if you're a zookeeper, conservationist, private hobbyist, you're, you got into this because you, you want that experience uh, and that experience is, is impactful to you. So for a lot of us, I think that experience looks a certain way and most of the time it doesn't really include a species like this and i think that's why a lot of people are unpleasantly surprised when they work with them but but for those of us who stay the course over time you realize that this is really one of the most rewarding genus genera that you can that you can work with absolutely and and you know and you can relate to this i started with little hatchlings and and raised Same. them up and and now, 10 years later, my little hatchlings are adults and they're producing their own eggs. And now that was another challenge. I guess we could talk about that in a few minutes. But uh, yeah, that was my next question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you know, trying to hatch them. I have yet to hatch any of the arachnoides eggs. Um, and this year so far has been uh, they're laying eggs like mad. I say like mad. I mean, that's relative, of course. They lay one egg at a time, but it's been like every 30 days. Right. Uh, they lay one one big giant egg. So uh, uh, now the trick is to is to hatch. Yeah, and the incubation, for anyone who doesn't know what a diapause is, this is a, a species that famous that, that famously is, is requiring a, a diapause that – uh, can be challenging from a husbandry standpoint and, and makes you really think. You're doing something different than I am, though, Ralph, this year. So what I do is I keep track of every single egg. So when they're hatched, basically what most people do is a warm-up period of four to six weeks, a cool-down period of four to six weeks, 
and then warm up again for the rest of incubation for as long as it goes. Now, some people, some literature said that you don't need the warm up. And I think maybe uh, hyperbole in my own brain, maybe this has to do with the time of year that the, in which the egg is laid. So if the egg is laid at the, at the end of the laying season, right before the coldest part of the year and driest part of the year, that that egg might do well just being cooled and then warmed for the duration. Uh, but generally speaking, most people warm, cool, warm. Is that that's what you do too, Ralph? Right? Warm, cool, warm. warm yeah, warm, cool, warm. Yeah. And then, and and the thing that we're doing differently is, I think you're kind of getting your eggs on the same cycle, so you can move them from warm to cool or cool to cool to warm at the same time. So you can actually manipulate the eggs a little bit to hatch all around the same time where uh, I'm trying to keep I'm, track I'm of attempting that this year. And I think it'd probably be tough to do that all together. You're still going to have to do waves because they kind of pepper you with eggs all throughout yeah, there's a no, period there's of several no months. Cycle. I mean, it's, it, it, they don't, it, yeah, there's no cycle on the eggs other than every 30 some odd days. Uh, so, so I have a couple of them that have probably been warmed. Um, oh, say six or seven weeks. And then one that's maybe only three or four weeks. And so I took a bunch of them and, and I said, all right, I'm just going to use this group. I set them, I set them aside uh, in the incubator. And then on one day I said, okay, I put them all in the core. Well, first I let them just acclimate to ambient. I don't go directly from the incubator to the core. That's a little bit too much of a shock. Uh, just let them acclimate to ambient, and then um, and then I put them all in the cooler at the same time. So they'll sit in there now for five or six weeks or whatever in the cooler, and then I have more in the incubator. Uh, and that group, fortunately, those eggs. There's four of them. They were laid all four of them within probably two weeks of each other. So I don't have a problem grouping those together. Yeah, it makes sense because it's know? a range. Yeah, yeah. So the idea is that um, that after the cooling period, then you take them out and put them back in the incubator. Uh, they'll all start to develop about the same time. That's the plan. And I know other people have done that, and they seem to have pretty good success. And they, you know, they they hatch six of them in one week. <laughs> How the hell do you do that? You know. Right. Yeah. Right. That's true. Actually, that's true. I've seen that before. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Like you must have a lot of adult animals, but yeah, that makes sense. Actually. I'm keeping track of every egg because it's fun. I'm having a lot of fun right now, you know, writing down on paper exactly when every single one is laid and then when it goes into the cooler, maybe this yeah. is an idea for the digital colonial log, Steve, like specifically like when eggs are then changed, like moved into the cooler, moved back into the incubator. That sort of thing, because um, I'm, I'm keeping track of all of that for all the eggs, and it's it's fun. It's uh, even though I'm pretty busy, and there's a lot of things I used to do that I don't have the time to do anymore. This is one that like I'm I'm happily happily taking on because it's fun. It's exciting. You could um, you could get away with that on Kaggle Rock, but not DCL at this point. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Uh, I, I write everything. Teach me, in a book. Teach me one. <laughs> <laughs> I have my old-fashioned book. It's old school. Yellow paper. And it's not a yellow paper, but... A yellow uh, notepad. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's when I was there notepads, last time, you had yellow. Did I, 
I made up the yellow pad. Uh, I may I may have progressed. I'll show it when you get down here. But uh, my secret, I know my we haven't blog, even mentioned you know? that yet that I'm going to see you next week. It's pretty exciting. Uh, yeah, almost. Yeah, next week. Weeks, it's the yeah. end of next week, but yeah, next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. So with the Dubai eggs this year, none of the arachnoides hatched, and I don't think I don't think any of them were fertile, and and um, and I'm told by the experts that that perhaps the males aren't old enough yet. Um, don't ask. I don't know. I've seen a lot of breeding activity, but maybe not successful, hmm. but um, the, the practicing the, the Bragui <laughs> and I'll admit there's a little bit of luck involved. Uh, I, I acquired a couple of males because I started out with one, one young female Bragui. I just had the one and uh, my, I, my original plan was to introduce her to a group that I knew in Florida that had several males and circumstances dictated that that didn't happen. COVID got in the way like everything else. And then uh, I was able to make a deal with somebody and acquire uh, two males. And so after a uh, quarantine period, I, I put them together and the two males were brothers. So it didn't matter which male uh, was successful. And it turned out that the both of them were, were mounting her. So I figured that's pretty good, pretty good odds. And then she started to lay a few eggs. You know, she only one, I say a few, it's only one at a time. And I went through that protocol and seven months to the day, which in itself sounds like forever, which it is, the first egg pipped, you know, and then 30 days later, the second egg pipped. And then 30 days later, the third egg pipped. And, and actually, she had laid at the time four eggs. So the fourth egg, uh, which was the very first one laid, kind of, they, they kind of turned gray, you know, before the females, I mean, the egg is ready to hatch. And then it didn't, and it stayed gray for the longest time. And I thought, I don't know. And I, I finally, one day I had to, I had to open it and it was a deceased embryo. So all four eggs were fertile and, and, um, but three out of the four hatched, but that was only half of it. So a couple of months go by. And I'm reveling in the fact that I have these three Braguai hatchlings. It's the greatest thing in the world. It was uh, early in the in the in the in the fall or early in the spring, I guess. It was yeah, yeah, early spring. One of the males had come out for after being buried for umpteen months, and when he did, he I looked in the enclosure, and he dug up an egg, and I thought, uh oh. This is this is a good. I missed an egg, and the egg was standing on its edge, standing straight up, all covered with dirt and mud. And I thought, oh crap! You know, I, how could I miss this 
bright blue white egg, you know, and for sure it's dead. And I, 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 I cleaned it up and I candled it and I said, you know, that thing looks like there's action going on in there. But I have no idea how long it was in the enclosure. No idea whatsoever. So I said, what the heck? I'll just put it in the, I put it in the incubator and I marked it to where I thought it was the right position. And six weeks later, it hatched. <laughs> so not bad. At a, at a one female, one year, four hatchlings. Right, and five that fertile eggs. It's amazing. Five fertile eggs. You know, and, that and reminds me that happened. Actually hatched. Right. Now, that reminds me that happened to me with my first egg. I didn't find it until the next year. And then uh, I took it and I started heating it for the first time. Like, oh my gosh, I found an egg. I don't know why. I was about to put it in the cool the cool down phase let me just candle this thing just to see and lit right up with a bunch of vasculature and a little dancing around in the egg i'm like oh my thing was fertile and what it means is it was yeah. late the season before yeah. and and sat through the whole winter and then started to develop and yeah. then continued to develop while i was incubating yeah. it i didn't i assume that wasn't the case but let me tell you the whole time I was incubating it, I was thinking, oh, my God, Ralph is going to kill me if I hatch one of the because this was before you had hatched any. It was the, from the season before. Yeah. And I said, if I hatch it because you at that time you were getting a bunch of eggs, but you weren't you weren't hatching any. And I yeah. had never gotten yeah. an egg. Yeah. And I got that yeah. first egg and it was fertile. And I said, oh, my gosh, Ralph is going to kill me. Uh, uh, so <laughs> no people know, Ralph, and I don't mean to put you. Yeah, damn right. And, uh, <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Especially to you. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Love it so much. It's so good. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I was really I mean, nervous. Anthony played basketball, right? Like, yeah. I mean. We've all got that competitive edge to some of our background, right? It comes out occasionally. Yeah. There. It's just not like Ralph's. You know, my biggest fear, funny. too, is he's, he's very <laughs> – you know, he if I hatched one before him, he'd come down here and burn my house down. So, <laughs> I just, you know, it was kind of a self-defense mode there, you know. <laughs> that's, so, that's so funny. Yeah, I think we both were probably – I don't know. When it actually got – I just remember when it actually got to the point, I wasn't like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to beat Ralph. I was like, oh, my gosh, if I do this before him – He's gonna murder me, and I'm gonna feel really bad. I remember feeling really bad, but I but at the same time, obviously, I wanted that egg to have so bad, and it didn't. But then that year, then because that was that was really that was in the spring that I was incubated. I found the egg in May, um, but it was from the season before because they lay at the end of the year in, into the into the winter. And uh, then the season started again, and that's when you and I both hatch them, except you hatch first because you're a little before me with the with the Florida warm up, you know, the warmer weather and everything. You're usually before me with everything, but uh, that, I felt good about that. And you hatched the the rarer of the two subspecies, so I was happy. I felt good about that. So I, I feel very good about where we are right now. Oh, big time! Yeah, big time. Um, 
you know, you talk about all the variables with the diapause and, and sweating over is the cooler. I actually went through two coolers. The first one, I didn't, I couldn't maintain the temperature. It got too cold. And uh, so I got rid of it and, and got another one. So I got, I got money invested in wine coolers, you know, with no wine in them. And, uh, but the, the, the last one to hatch, and I, I started to say about all our fretting over the diapause, it just, it laid in the enclosure, you know, whatever ambient temperature was, that's what the egg was. Uh, if it warmed up to 75 during the day, then so be it. If it cooled down to 65 or 60 at night, so be it. Uh, I have no idea how long it was in there. No idea. Probably five months at least, at minimum. That's so cool. Now, I, I don't want, as much as you know, you and I love to geek out about spider tortoises, there's another small tortoise that we talk about, and that's Egyptians. It wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a Ralph get better here if not if we didn't talk about Egyptians. So I know a lot has been said uh, and, and shared with people around the Egyptians and they're being petitioned, uh, proposed to be added to the endangered stay legislation uh, by the federal fish and wildlife. Uh, and for, for anyone who's, who's not aware, uh, Ralph and I were kind of part, Ralph is first of all, the, the, the biggest probably uh, champion of Egyptian tortoises in, in the U S in terms of, you know, the of these of preserved and forest species, but we were also we worked on and part of kind of a grassroots uh, uh, makeshift type coalition, a very small group of of people who tried to get an idea of how many Egyptian tortoises are actually being bred in the U.S. every year, and we looked at the past three years to kind of compile numbers so that we could present that as part of our uh, plea to the government to not list the Egyptian tortoises. Uh, Ralph, can you tell, so I just want to give that kind of background so everybody knows. Uh, Ralph, can you, do you want to tell people why we are in opposition of them being listed on the Endangered Species Act? <laughs> well, besides How much time we got? <laughs> You've got the floor. You've got four we hours. Have, we have about 40 minutes um, <laughs> at most. Oh, boy, oh, boy. I'm going to have to go to Here bed and go. get up at 4.30. Uh, Come on now. <laughs> I, I, I promise I'll be, I'll be nice. Elevator <laughs> speech. Elevator <laughs> speech, yeah, right? You, you, so, uh, you just walked into yeah. another with somebody who's on the commission, who's on, on the committee that's going to so make So the decision. number, for, for those who aren't familiar, okay, and I don't know uh, the audience, maybe, um, you know, they're critically endangered in the wild. They're, they're virtually extinct in their native uh, land, which is uh, Libya, Egypt, and, and into uh, Israel. All the documentation that was written on the proposal for the listing of, of the ESA listing 
and, and I should add, most of it is written by special interest groups um, that have a different agenda. They, they, they cited all the, all the criteria that warrants them being virtually extinct in the wild, habitat destruction, overgrazing, poaching, um, it, the list goes on. And we've all heard the stories about how land is being used up everywhere. They took it to the extreme over there. So so they're, they're virtually gone, especially in Egypt. They're, they're namesake, they're, they're, they're virtually gone. They're considered functionally extinct right now. And, and functionally extinct means that while there may still be some animals roaming around, there's, there's so much distance between them that the odds of a pair ever crossing paths is rather remote. And then in the wild, especially, they're very, very, very slow to reproduce. So it's, it's a negative gain right now over there. So some of these special interest groups have decided that hey here's an opportunity to to i gotta be careful here <laughs> here's an opportunity to on the surface make it look like we are concerned about the future of the egyptian tortoise and we want to put in place uh, plans to prevent it from being traded and bred and shipped around the country, but in the U.S. So wait a minute. You say, what the hell are you doing, doing protecting them in the U.S.? The U.S. isn't a problem. The problem is Egypt and Israel and Libya. But special interest groups don't have any clout over there. You know, their, their word is meaningless over there. And also special interest groups need revenue. And people don't want to hear that, but that's the fact. They need revenue. They, they by, by filing frivolous lawsuits, if they win the lawsuits, they're, 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 uh, they can collect fees uh, from the federal government. That's a fact. Also, it, it gives them clout amongst their supporters. Uh, it's, look, we just won this case against the, the Egyptian tortoise. So this is another example of how great we are and what we're doing. So send us more money. And people do. You know, it's a, it's a sob story. And people buy into that. And that's what keeps them going. These special interest groups... I'll venture to say half of them don't even know what an Egyptian tortoise is and probably could care less. It's all about survival for them, the special interest groups. I think they care. I, th I think they, I think that they, I think that these things can be simultaneously true. I think you and them could think, I want to save the Egyptian tortoise. The problem is that they maybe don't know why what they're advocating for does more harm than good. That's the piece that makes it so complicated is that these animal related things are, are multifaceted and people, 
people are very much black and white thinkers, especially when they have a lesser understanding of something. So obviously keepers are going to come at it from a keeper side and, you know, people who want to push for laws are going to push for laws, especially if that helps their organization in the, uh, in the process. But the main thing is Egyptians are, and look, nobody knows more than, than, than people here in this country who are obsessed with species and keeping an eye on everything that happens. Egyptian tortoises are not being smuggled into this country. They're just not. But they are being bred legally in captive collections. Way more than anyone really realizes. What was the number that we came up with, Ralph? It was crazy. 502? In the last years, it was like 503 or 6 or something like that. That's insane. Who would have ever thought that? This little... Uh, this little yeah. species with such low fecundity rate, which adds to their endangered status, be 500, more than 500 of them being produced in captivity, the vast majority of which, vast, va I can't even put enough emphasis on the word vast, the vast majority of which were produced by private keepers, not institutions. They were, they were that number represented... Um, and I don't want to attack the, the zoo system because of course. they have their own issues. Okay, They're, most of the, we we have so many friends who, who work in the yeah. AZA and other and, zoo. Yes, and, and absolutely the, wonderful people. people. And, and I, I I I know a lot of them, and they're awesome people. But this, their their system doesn't allow them to to breed in numbers. Um, what we come up with a three or five or something and hatchlings in the last three years the whole zoo system so uh i mean they're trying i guess but again you know some policies and whatever well the strength the is in numbers with the private folks right there's there's people who don't have to worry about megafauna and things that bring folks through the turnstiles yeah, but they can yeah, actually focus yeah. on things yeah. that some of the zoos aren't allowed to you know like yeah how do you how do you cool down a species in a reptile building how do you you know, how do you breed a species when they also has to be on display and, and you have a limited amount of space to work with and everything like they have challenges and they do amazing work. Everybody knows they do amazing work yeah. Yeah. Uh, besides the special interest groups that want to shut them down, which we all know is anyone who's watching this uh, probably thinks is ridiculous. But uh, but yeah, I mean, there have been species that have been saved by private keeping, right? Private breeding. Like Absolutely. if it wasn't for private breeding, the, you know, the Vietnamese pond turtle would be all but gone. That's a species that's actually been reintroduced. The Burmese star tortoise uh, is, is another one that's been reintroduced and would be all but gone if not for private breeding, uh, a captive breeding, I should say. Uh, and then other species where, you know, they are gone in the wild and haven't been reintroduced, but that's a possibility because of captive breeding, like McCord's box turtle or the yellow-headed box turtle. The, the Egyptian tortoise is moving in that direction. Species from Madagascar, like the spider tortoise we were talking about, is moving in that direction as well, where people are going to be thanking those who have been working hard to breed species in the, in the wild, in, in, in species uh, outside of the wild, I should say. Yeah, like with the Egyptians, I, I remember, uh, 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 again, I don't want to mention names, but a dear friend of mine who's been working with Egyptian forever. And I said, wouldn't it be great if we could we could take 50 or some odd hatchlings and, and, you know, head start them, make, you know, wait till they're a year or two old 
and then release them, send them over there and release them back into their native land. He said, never happened. They wouldn't accept them. So how can you, you know, you want to do something. You're willing to give animals back and, and yet they won't accept them. And they'll come up with a, a laundry list of reasons why. I, and that's okay, I suppose. And you those know, reasons make me. sense, but go ahead, go ahead. Another thing that bothers me with 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 all the um, and I know you read them all the on the Federal Register all the comments and the comments that were right at the very end by some of the activist groups and they they had a laundry list of of why the Egyptian tortoise is in the position that it's in and and there's a few other groups that have jumped on that bandwagon as well all right they are correct everything they cited was correct in terms of habitat destruction climate change poaching all that stuff nowhere nowhere in any of the of, of that commentary by any of these activist groups is there one sentence of an action plan to try and preserve the species even in its native land nowhere Right, it's not about that. that. But it's it's complicated. So when you said they would never take them back, that's true, and that's something that I often cite. But it's that the title from that um, kind of sad documentary. We're waiting for the the chances of the world changing, and that's what happened for the Vietnamese pond turtle when those were released. And that's not something that has been widely successful. But they actually were released back into the wild. The the the. Uh, the Burmese star tortoise actually being released back in the wild and whether things are soft released or whatever, all the details, I don't necessarily know, but I'm just saying that sometimes it takes a species being totally gone so that at that point they're not worried about, Oh, well maybe there's different subspecies here and you're just taking, you know, pet trade animals and putting them back and who knows what type of Genes are mixed in and, and different localities now are all being bred back together. Well, if the species is gone, then okay, let's try it. Now the ecosystem is missing this important part of its of the of its you know makeup. Let's put that back. Like on how they put different tortoise species onto islands and things where tortoises used to exist and are missing uh, from the ecosystem there. So I think there's always conservation is really complicated and i think common sense would tell us yeah we should be able to just breed spotted turtles and release them back into the wild but there's so much that goes into that that i think people don't necessarily realize so just understanding that when a species is gone however really truly gone and things like muddying the gene pool are kind of off the table then it becomes more of a real uh, uh, possibility that those animals that are being bred in zoos and private collections can then be returned back to the wild. But it's complicated. But, now, but um, I, I agree with you. And, and the reality is it'll never happen. They'll never, ever be reintroduced to the wild, primarily because wild doesn't exist anymore. You know, they don't, the, the, in regards to the use the spider tortoise as a as an example, um, they have an extremely limited range, right? I mean, it's it's a real narrow strip of land on the coastline that they're found. So to reintroduce right. them two hundred miles north 
would serve no purpose. They would be out of their element and they would, they would probably perish. Same with the Egyptian tortoise. Its range is the coastline. It relies on that, 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 uh, that Mediterranean coastline. That combination of the air and sea uh, provides a rather humid environment uh, during the, in the early morning hours for them. And, and their total range is only inland, I don't know exactly, maybe 30, 40 miles. So if you find Egyptian tortoises in Cairo, which is a couple of hundred miles south, they're all, they're all poached or collected out of the field or what. You know, that's not their native range. So you couldn't even take them and let them go out in the desert because they would just die. That's not their native range. Right. Sorry. Steve added something here. Um, this is why the ESA is targeted by these groups as well, because of our status as a consumer market for wildlife. The U.S. is the world's second largest consumer market for wildlife. And that's that's it. They don't realize that when there's all these Egyptian tortoises being sold, that that is proof that what we do is working. It's because those animals, the most public account of who we are is those animal sales, those classifieds, right? So you see yeah. these Egyptian tortoise being sold in their minds. Those are Egyptian tortoises being sold. These things are being trafficked, man. They're all over the place. Yeah. Uh, and they don't realize that there are no wild caught Egyptians. I, someone who really, who keeps Egyptians like we do, or, or especially to the level that Ralph does, you could pick out a wild caught Egyptian a mile away. They yeah. look so much different, but they don't yeah. know that. They're just seeing the Egyptians. So that's the piece that we really have to drive home is the damage is done. The, the animals being imported in the 80s and 90s and, and, and around the turn of the century in huge numbers to meet the demand exotic pets, like that's, those days for a lot of these species are, are done. And we can talk right. about Russian right. tortoises and, and yeah. rhinoclemmies and animals that are still being imported in relatively large numbers now. Uh, but those days are done. And now the animals are here. And what's going to end up happening is that it becomes more difficult for animals to be traded from one person to another because now you can't do so for money across state line lines. But that doesn't necessarily stop the breeding. Uh, for anyone who's, who's breeding them, I, I kind of challenge you. And, and Ralph and I have had this conversation Gosh, 500 times, right? But yeah. what do you do it for, right? Ralph, are you going to stop breeding Egyptian tortoises because they get listed on the ESA and you can't get money for them anymore? Am I? No, no way. Right. But the yeah. problem is then you can't sell them. So, so what you do with them becomes a different game plan. But I mean, you weren't selling all of your Egyptians anyway. It was, it was never about the money for you. Yeah, I, I never... I never dreamed that when I started this project 15 years ago with the Egyptians that it would it would be a, a business, you know, it, and it still isn't a business. Do I sell a few? Yes. I mean, I, I won't deny that, but I'm pretty I try at least to be selective as to you know who they go to with the intent that uh, or the hopes that they create a, a, their own colony. That's that's my goal. That's the way I look at it. You know, I might be a little naive, but I don't care. You know, uh, it works. Tom had a had a comment here that I really loved. And I, I see really great comments all over the place, but Tom's was really good. I still don't understand why the wildlife establishment co cooperates with trophy hunters to hang dead animal heads on their wall, but denies those who breed herps in captivity. 
huge double standard. And that, that's what we're dealing with. And I think it's, there are things that are just part of our family and part of our, our traditions and things And Steve, you can get a thought right now. I promise. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. like, like how different species are introduced to other things as, you know, because fishing is just a normal part of what we keep doing that and, and, and keep, you know, molesting or killing or, or torturing wildlife. I'm not saying fishing is wrong. I actually like fishing, but I'm just saying like, why is that okay? Would it be okay if I was out fishing and accidentally hooking Egyptian tortoises or would that be wrong? I'm not really sure. Uh, so there's these things that are kind of accepted and then there are things that are kind of as extra and you know we know with it's the same uh argument with with uh invasive species and uh and species that are seen as being a threat like we know that there is no feral introduced animal that is worse than we're not going to outlaw cats right steve i know you love cats in your household uh, still something is, it's just we are. yours don't go out because you're smart, right? But I, I have yeah. I actually I work with someone who's re really smart and has like nine cats and and they're out indoor outdoor cats and I tell her all the time I love to share things with her because I'm on a bunch of wildlife groups that care about the damage yeah. cats are doing and she's in a bunch of you know, cat lover groups that that don't necessarily demonize this whole thing and she doesn't really even know so I always give her a hard time about it but we care about our cats so much that we prioritize them over the wildlife. But it's it's all animal lovers, and there's just so much nuance uh, among animal lovers. And there's certain things that people just see as kind of the norm, and then there are things that people just are not, not willing to care about. And the stuff that we all who are tuning into this podcast care about is stuff that most people would would not care about, or maybe even laugh at us for caring about. So, uh, Steve, your thoughts? It's really it's it's really tough for me to grasp the 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 rationale behind the Egyptian tortoise deal because if if they get listed ESA it'll it'll depending on the language how the whole thing is is written um, it'll pre, it'll prevent the sale of about maybe 150 to what 175 specimens a year in the entire United States. What are you winning? You know, what what are you gaining? That, that's the part I there, just can't yeah. Grab. There there are some international impacts of listing on the ESA. One of them is um, the history of the ESA was tied directly to the implementation of CITES in the U.S. So it's seen yeah. as part of a connection with that international law. Um, it right. does a species that does get listed does get some federal funding that goes towards its conservation in the wild. So if the Egyptian would get listed, there would be federal funding tied to its listing that it would it would then be entitled to. But, how much funding you know, do you think, Steve? Any idea how much money? No, I, I think it depends on the species and whatever else. I don't really know, but I know that that's something that's in the act is species that are listed. Like we we focus often on their impacts here in the U.S., um, but there there is stuff in there that guarantees it some kind of federal funding that goes towards its con conservation. I don't know enough about how that funding gets gets distributed or how that, that happens, but it is there as part of 
of the act. Um, and then there's always that that shut down the commercial part. Whether and people don't look at the the nuance between captive bred or wild or anything else, they're shut down the commerce because that's part of a problem. But right. But so the the international impacts that the the act has are there, but the question is whether the gains of those are worth the hurts of some of the other stuff that would happen within the U.S. for an animal that isn't being imported legally or otherwise, really, and you know, it's that scale balancing thing. Um, the other thing I was gonna gonna try to get in there with um, with Tom's comment earlier, and I'm not entirely sure what the wildlife establishment is or who that is. <laughs> um, <clears throat> to be honest, like I don't know what that what that phrase means, um, but I think something that's in, like we talk about it, and, and even as a as an organization ourselves, we talk about this is that. You need money to do your work, right? We need money to do our work. A lot of those trophy hunts, and I mean, we see it here in the even in the U.S. I'll use Pennsylvania for example. A lot of our conservation funding in the state comes from fishing licenses, hunting licenses, and all this other stuff, right? It's a revenue generator that they turn around to protect the land, protect the animals, and all this other stuff, right? So that funding has to come from somewhere. Are any of us paying much money to keep the animals we're keeping to conservation causes or anything else? No, we're not. And so that's one of the big differences right here. I right. used to pay my Your CBW C- permit until yeah. they decided they weren't going to let people have them anymore. Right, but if you but when you think about like that, that's one of the differences though here too between you know working with some of these hunts or fishing licenses or whatever else, and there this stuff really isn't in the herp keeping community where it's creating forced revenue that goes back to the conservation, and so that's one of those pieces there that we don't like talking about that money aspect, and a lot of times we try to demonize that money aspect, but it's there, and like there's a lot of nuance to this as well. You know what I mean? Like none of this stuff is black and white. It's why we can spend more than an hour here talking about it is because there is so much nuance and it isn't this split and, you know, easy thing. It isn't that the ESA is all bad, right? It's that do the consequences outweigh the benefits, right? No matter which thing we're talking about. I don't think the ESA in itself is all bad. Right, exactly. And that's right. And that's what I'm saying. It's like all of this is gray area. In this particular instance, it it just does nothing. You know, it's it's totally redundant. It just it's it's like putting a stop sign in front of a stop sign. I mean, you already know what you have. You know, I mean that's how stupid it sounds. The only thing that actually worries me about that whole deal is is the uh, the commercial sales aspect of it. Quite frankly, that's yeah. that's the part. And, and, um, I mean, I I, already, you see what it's done. You see what it's done to some of the pricing and, and, uh, the fear factor and some people who are supposedly real conscientious keepers are starting to bail out. I think that's a, that's a, that's sad. 
you know, I'm sorry to see that. Um, but who knows? Yeah, it's it really is too bad. Um, I'm not I'm not selling out. I'm I'm gonna keep them. Um, I have I have worked very hard at. Well, it's not hard, but yes, you have. I've developed five different bloodlines here, and it's taken me years of picking and choosing and trading and and right. whatever. And my 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 whole mantra is to develop different bloodlines to to keep to preserve the species. And and um, and over the years, I developed a good rapport with with a few individuals out there uh you know anthony yourself included you know where i stand and where i can i can move animals around uh and and for the whole the sole purpose of creating different breeding colonies that's yeah. where i stand that's been my position um you know do i sell a few on the way to pay the bills sure but uh but that's that's my my standing on that. Yeah, and and you should be able to, like and I, I should think be able. To. Anyone who watches this, I think, would be in agreement with that. But I also think, for me, the 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 saving grace here is the fact that as somebody who does not breed, and this this isn't going to be a popular opinion for anyone, but as somebody who doesn't breed turtles tortoises for money for my livelihood. When certain species are targeted for the ESA, it doesn't bother me, particularly, might I add, uh, native species, because it becomes really difficult to govern that. And I think there are animals that are being, you know, they're here, they're poached, they're moved across state lines. Like, I think that matters. I think that, like, the ESA listing helps the bog yep. turtle. That's a big difference, though, between that and the Egyptian turtle tortoise. And I think at least for that, for the Egyptian uh, you know, the species we've been talking about is that for people like Ralph that, do, that don't do it for the money, they're going to keep doing it because it's the right thing to do. And it almost becomes better in the sense, just silver lining, not better all the way across the board, but better in a sense that now you get to v really continue to vet people the way that Ralph does. Ralph is like a Seinfeld episode, like the, the soup I'm not going to use the word, but the soup guy, like very particular <laughs> about who gets this. I'm very PC, very particular about who gets the soup. That's how Ralph is with his Egyptians. And he, he would just be able to continue to do that now. Like if you think it was tough to get Egyptians from Ralph before, now you're really going to be vetted. And those animals are going to go to people who are setting up groups and that's just where they're going to go. Right. So um, I think, you know, from the animal's perspective, it might be better, um, but I don't know. I mean, time will tell. There's also something to be said for the fact, unfortunately, because I wish we were better than this, uh, myself included, that when you pay more for an animal, you're more willing to take better care of it and uh, for the long haul. But I don't know. I'm not saying anyone here is guilty of that. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not. I don't know. But I, I mean, well, it's I just think it's common and um I was told by someone years ago, um, and, and he, he charged me, it was actually with spider tortoises. And um, at the time I paid a premium, you know? 
And he just came right out and he said, you know, I, I know I charge a lot, but if, if you want them that bad, you're going to pay the price because you've invested a significant amount of money in these things. You are going to look after them. You are going to make sure that they have everything that they need because you just spent a lot of money. Right? Right. So, right. I, but that, I mean, I struggled with that. I, 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 I don't want to get off on the, my horse on that. Well, I struggled with trying to be fair with pricing and it just always kind of blew up in my face. So, well, cause you take it personally when you sell to somebody for one price, and then eight months later, they're selling for double the price or triple the price it uh, makes you, after they told you how much they wanted them. I know. I, you never forget those. I remember I sold a, a pair of turtles to, to someone who told me how bad they wanted them, and I gave them a price break and then because he wanted them so bad. And then a week later, yeah. they were offered for sale. I mean, this is the reality. This is who we are. Yeah. Um, not all of us, but like that's us. Like when you see somebody – so recently there was somebody who was posting – you know, uh, animals for sale. They had a bunch of adult spider tortoises. They had uh, radiateds and they had plowshares and, and photos of them. And obviously wild. Yeah, and you, when yeah. you're into this, you can see a photo of one of those species and know that's a wild yeah. animal. You know, it's grown perfectly yeah. smooth. It's a species as in, you know, with uh, Astrocheles yunfora yin that is not produced in captivity or was not really, you know, um, let out of mass Madagascar legally or whatever. And here's this guy who's selling them. And all these people from Facebook are like, Oh man, tell me about the plowshares. How much for the plowshares, blah, blah, blah. All these different people from all over, all over the world. And I said, gross, stop selling poached animals. And then some guy in America started to argue with me. Well, how do you know they're part poached? And we got in this whole long argument about, about it. And I think as sad as it is, I am, a part of the same group of people that that guy is in and the guy who was arguing in, to his defense. That's the truth. And, and especially from the, the viewpoint of the people who are making these laws. So we talked about a lot in the podcast in the past that we have to self-govern, but just keep that in mind, right? That there's a lot of stuff going on that is not, that is not above board, is not where we all operate. And in order for us to continue to kind of bridge the gap between the institutional side, the, educa the, the, the educational side, the in-situ conservation side, uh, the lawmaker side, and then also the private hobbyist side, we need to make sure that that private hobbyist side in the, you know, in the public eye is looking the part. I say that all the time. I'm always on my soapbox. No, I mean, it's, it's, you mentioned a comment there, uh, uh, self-govern, you know, um, I mean, a lot of this stuff we're responsible for. So, you know, not you and I directly maybe, but the, the, like you said, we're all immersed in it. Uh, yeah. you know, we're, we're, we're part of it. Uh, we need to be a little more diligent with our, our own policing, I think. Um, uh, overall, I, with the with the Egyptian thing again, you know, you mentioned I, I have more than a few people upset with me, but you know, because I won't just fork over hatchlings. But sorry, you know. But then on the flip side of that, I have developed some great relationships with people, and I I look forward to hearing from them, and I look forward to dealing with them. Um, 
you know, I, I enjoy, I, 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 I have a few animals in my collection that were, I shouldn't have, that people just felt confident enough in me to send me, you know, a breeding adult female. Not many people right. would do that, you know? When he says shouldn't have, he means he's not doing anything illegal. No, no, no. I don't mean that. Yeah, correct. I, when I say shouldn't have, I just they, want to they be clear on the, on the market and sold it for big money. You know, I know you. I know you, Florida guys, love bog turtles. So I just want to make that clear. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to even go there. But uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was occupational humor. No, that was just a turtle joke. <laughs> I wasn't talking about anybody. I'm happy that people have them. I'm just saying it raises eyebrows. That's all. Yeah. Well, what I was Everybody trying knows. to, my point wasn't, wasn't, <laughs> my point was that there's people that are uh, realistic about the species or passionate about the species yeah, and, and share the same devotion and passion for them that I do. And, and, uh, and it's a good thing. It makes me feel good because I, then these same people, I had no reservations about shipping three unrelated hatchlings to them, you know, to enhance their group, knowing that down the road, it's going to take some years, but they'll have a breeding colony just to perpetuate the whole, the whole breeding thing. Tell Kevin right. to go away. Go away, Kevin. Say good night, Kevin. Bro. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Say good night, Kevin. I need a knock on the door. Not that I'm worried, but I don't need one anyhow. <laughs> oh, yeah. Kevin, Kevin's up past his bedtime. <laughs> I think I this is my first visit from FWC. Now you wait and see. I think this is a good a good place to to wind down. What um, what are you feeling going into next week? Hanging out? Are you nervous? Are you are you do you have to like uh, psych yourself up to to be able to handle this? In, in the Florida heat, it's a lot to drink in. Uh, well, there's not much drinking going on anymore. I'm an old man now, but uh, you can drink. I'll drive. Um, I wasn't even talking about drinking. Oh, <laughs> classic. I'll be, I'll be, <laughs> oh, never mind. But um, I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing you and, and, and uh, sharing a few things, you know. Um, I hope it all works out. I don't know quite what the transportation aspect of it is from one side of the state to the other. Agreed. And I don't know what your timeline is yet. Uh, I mean, we briefly discussed it. So can you get an extra day? I don't think no. so. No. I don't think so. I think Shannon would, you'd, you'd find me somewhere someone would find me on a hike hidden in the in the tall grass but you uh the tall grass isn't taller than you i know I'd be <laughs> down the, the problem is she wouldn't be able to get me far out into the woods because i'm so heavy what i'm anxious what i'm anxious to see is you coming across the state in a mini cooper <laughs> yeah yeah we're gonna have to make that work <laughs> 
Uh, Listen, I'm a contortionist. Oh, I have to fit on the plane on the way down. Luckily, JetBlue. I mean, right you used to drive a little. What was it? What was what was the car you drove that we busted the oil pan on? <laughs> that was a Mazda three. But listen, it's a small car. It was like a little roller skate, but it was like a Barbie car because my legs could go all the way down, like under the engine, and uh, it just it had to, some. Sometimes certain cars just have space. That was one of them. There's SUVs that I can't that I can't fit in at all. So I just like giving you a heart. I, I just like bringing up the oil pan, right? That was, oh, it was like, so bad. That was our, it was our first like together herping type of thing yeah. as we were scouting that. Yeah. And we busted an oil, like it's great memories that weekend though. Really, like despite all of the disaster that went with it. <laughs> so I, my car I, was uh, down I, there for like weeks. I've I know up everything, you know, so it'll, it'll pass the, the Anthony test. Yeah, you know, I'm a, I am a uh, a a scrutinizing and and unwavering uh, uh, judge judge of turtle rooms. So if your room is not looking like I can eat uh, a, a three course meal off of the floor, then I'm really going to have some issues. So make sure it's looking real nice, okay? Yeah, yeah, for certain. I take I'm it seriously. Up. I've been staying up late worrying about it. So, scrubbing the floor with a toothbrush. And uh, well, not quite yet, but uh, well, I'm, get on it. Okay. Yeah. Yes, sir. Because yeah. I'm looking at your room right after I look at Charlie's room, and I'm going to be judging well, you based Charlie, on that. Charlie's room embarrassed me. Uh, I was yeah. embarrassed. <laughs> the best part is, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave my dilapidated uh, should be condemned turtle room to fly down and see your rooms and you're both going to be like anxious to show me like I like I actually am going to judge you that's the funny part because you're was, joking about it but you're actually seriously like getting ready for the visit which is hilarious I was I was uh, I was embarrassed I mean he's got his own sink and refrigerator and everything I mean it's I don't I, yeah he's extra you know uh, yeah, and I didn't see any dirt anywhere. I didn't see any poop anywhere. I didn't, I didn't see anything other than, I mean, even the turtles he scrubbed clean. I mean, it was like, what the hell, you know? <laughs> supposed to oh, at least it's not fair. He has a, you know, he has a staff that helps him. It's not fair. I, that's what it was, you know. And and um, he's like, hey guys, I got an overtime project for you. Come on over. <laughs> early, <you know? laughs> So, We're scrubbing uh, Goe Mida shells tonight. Man, I mean, even his even his spare closet stuff was like well organized. Come on, you know, don't that's, you just crack in there? I'm gonna take. I'm gonna like step. take a turn. I, I'm gonna like go through like some doorways and stuff, and go into some closets and really root around and see what I can find. All right. So if I see anything that's a little, you know, maybe he throws stuff into a closet and just closes the Let door. Let me know, please. I'll take pictures. Yeah, yeah really. I'll take pictures. I mean, uh, yeah, that was that was a huge mistake going there because I said, "Oh my god," you know. Now, <laughs> I thought I was hot stuff, and then I just went down. Maybe next next pod podcast we can have an unveiling. Who has the best turtle room in Florida? That's what we can do. <laughs> I mean, if anyone has anyone else that they want to nominate, knowing how meticulous both Ralph and Charlie are, then then go ahead. Are you uh, you bringing the video camera? No, just my cell phone. I don't. I don't really do That's much. That's good video enough. Camera. 
cell phone yeah, I'll take photos good enough video I'll take photos but I don't really edit video anymore I don't have enough time the first time people who don't know that the first time I ever met Anthony he pulled in my driveway in his little bitty rental car and he stepped out and of course he's nine feet high before he even says hello he's got a video camera running you know <laughs> <laughs> oh those are the days man yeah I mean, he was he was rolling for every second he could for really? uh, to uh, you know to to put on our YouTube channel back then. So, so uh, yeah. <laughs> production value was left a lot to be desired, but I did make a lot of videos. Yeah, yeah, a lot of them. Wow, it's uh, time flies when you're having fun, guys. Look at that. Um, I know we can keep going. Let's do this again tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Or, or at least next month, maybe. <laughs> It sounds good. Uh, Thanks, Ralph. I appreciate you so much, man. I, I I tell you, you know, this is one of the things. Actually, Kevin Pollack, who was on, we had him on in the winter. I think it was in, like the first show in January, January 3rd or January 4th. He was talking to one of his friends about me. He told me this story the other day, and he said that I'm the only person he knows who likes the people more than the animals. And, you know, I'm, I geek out about the animals, but I really do love my turtle people i really do and i mean like having you guys here right now like uh, ralph i appreciate you so much like you're you're one of those people that the people who know you just really cherish their their friendship with you because you're somebody who's all about the animals and who will do anything you know for your animals and for for the betterment of of the species that you care about you're also really focused we didn't even mention that today. That you're one, you're probably one of the most focused keepers that there is, uh, which is kind of a new uh, new thing that's happening now with certain keepers. Jeremy Tyne at the top of that list too. But uh, I just appreciate you, man. Appreciate you, and and that's why we've uh, had you on now three times. You're the the second person. I, I appreciate the time words three times. and uh, and. Um... You know, and 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 the support that you guys have always kind of given me. Uh, sure, I'm 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 most appreciative, and I hope that um, I hope it encourages other people to kind of be. And I, I don't know how much time you have. I don't want to run on here, but uh, I'm Just a big go. advocate of of being um, kind of focused on one or two species. I I think that. In my opinion, the future of some of this stuff in in proper captive bred environments would require that we just focus. And I think there's enough of us um, that we could do that and 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 to be able to support all the different species of turtles and tortoises uh, properly. You know, instead of having right. 300 of every different kind, just focus on a few and doing it the right way. Uh, you know, I didn't say not anything. saying any names. I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty of that. No. Yes. Okay. Not really. Uh, love yes. you guys. Love you guys. <laughs> love you too, man. <laughs> oh. All right. You guys take care. We'll be back in November. Uh, we're working on a guest right now. The day should be uh, November 7th, right, Steve? There's no reason not to do one the first Monday in November. Uh, yeah, I almost forgot it was October. Yeah, November 7th, right before Election Day. Yep. Ooh, we'll get political on you. 
Yeah, we will not be your election primer. We will not be your election primer. <laughs> We're here to help you forget about the election because you like turtles more than politics. I'm, I'm, and, you know, I'm very proud, but I didn't hear any political position at all tonight. Thank God. You're welcome. Happy to help. Have a good one, guys. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thank uh, you again, thanks, Ryan. Ralph. We'll, we'll, we definitely have to keep doing this. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Uh, and your passion for the Egyptian turtle, uh, Egyptian tortoise is unmatched. Unmatched. The, the Klein Manai. Yes. Yes. Still testudo. Klein Manai. Any last words, Anthony? I love you all. Don't ever change. All right. Then let's roll it out. Have a good night, everybody. Thanks for joining us. See you in four weeks. Good night, Deuces. Dad.